0: What is the most important thing that you that, that you need to get straightened out? That that, that you need to um, get resolved? And the answer is going to be benediction. But then, a little trick trick on you, but it's true. This is not a trick, really. Well, then what would I need in order to be assured of the benediction? And the answer is going to be the benediction. So let's Let's see what this is. what is this guy doing here? So when we think of benediction, fundamentally we're thinking about a blessing. Now what comes to your mind when I say that we need to uh, uh, acquire God's blessing? Particularly if we're thinking of a ritual. So maybe it's something like this. Right? We hear the word blessing all over the place. Clearly to bless someone is more than to bless you. Okay, clearly it's more than a quaint Southernism. Oh, bless your heart. How many of y'all grew up with that one? Yeah, I grew up with that all the time. It usually, It usually comes when you've done something bad. But sometimes it comes when you've, uh, you know, got some kind of other issue going on. But, uh, but there it is. And, of course, what's the most famous use of a blessing? yes. Everybody sit around the table. Let's have a blessing. All right? Look at the little girl, by the way, back there on the left. Uh, you know, that's kind, of, that's kind of the point, you know. Yeah, I was looking through for pictures for these, and almost every picture, they are wanting to show how kids are sneaking a peek at the food, or sneaking a peek at the people that are on their heads. So that's the concept. Well, okay. Enough of this. Let's get into some meat and potatoes here. Uh, first of all, let's talk about this thing we call the, the blessing ritual. That we find all through the Scripture, and clearly we're going to make the case that it is a ritual, but it's more than a ritual. But have you ever noticed how big a deal the blessing ritual was according to the Genesis account of Redemptive History? It was the kind of thing that people would kill for, literally. Cain and Abel. It motivated mothers to instigate all kinds of complex deceptions on behalf of their favorite child, Jacob and Esau. I particularly want to read this, Genesis 27, 19. And could y'all would someone read that for you that can read um, from way up here? Who would like to read that? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that you shall make that you that your soul may bless me. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of the field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brother and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. So we know, if you know the context, this is the context where Jacob's mother... Uh, does a, a real scheming to make sure her favorite child receives the blessing of of, uh, of uh, you know her father Isaac and um, his father and uh, and of course we're already beginning we heard in the sermons a lot of things that kind of uh, reflected some of what's happening here but this ritual no matter how you got it was incredibly important now that's kind of interesting Um Notice then, when the father uh, uh, recognizes that he's been duped, it's irrevocable. That's important. I'll read it. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? Now, of course, I've skipped over to the story where uh, Isaac comes in. And he said, um, Esau, I'm sorry, came in. I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. And then Isaac trembled very violently. Now stop and just take a breath and think about what. Why? What was such a big deal about this benediction ritual? That when he discovered that the wrong son had received it, he trembled violently. I mean, you know, just a ritual? Come on, big deal. Oops, wrong kid. Hey, bring that other kid in here. I'm going to give it to him. Not so. In fact it goes on through this whole story. You know, who was it then that honey game and brought it to me and I ate it all before you came and I was blessed him, yes, and he shall be blessed. And as soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. Listen to this language this bitter cry it said to his Son Bless me, even me also, my father. And but he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? And Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers, and I have given to him four servants, and and with grain and wine that sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Now, what's going on with that? And this is not just one instance. We see these sorts of scenarios throughout Scripture. Clearly, we're going to have to revisit this thing we call the benediction. This this thing, even as we describe it at the end of a worship service. Redemptive history. um, And so let's get back to a little biblical theology here, starting with and here's for a real quick glance, Genesis to Revelations. Just notice how history begins with benediction. You know, it begins with the record of the divine blessing in the creation account itself, and it's going to give you a clues to what it means. Genesis 1, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seeds, and let birds multiply on the earth. You see it again. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth now you're wondering is there power to this? or is this just some kind of a wish list oh I hope that you'll go and be multiplied go have some babies you know or maybe it's even a command go multiply you see the strangeness of Jacob's blessing remember was in fact that it actually affected something in the future. It transacted a covenant, if not also memorializing it. It somehow placed God's saving activity into a genealogy given this old covenant context. It was both sign, you could say, and seal, even as to involve a real and effectual relation between the two. Now, let's go back to this situation. As you go through natural And I want to say natural history or redemptive history. Clearly, what we see in this blessing in Genesis, in the way it's repeated in every successive redemptive covenant, is that it's a redemptive history event. I won't read these, but you'll notice the same exact language uh, being mirrored in these blessings of Noah, of Abraham, of Isaac to Jacob, of Jacob Joseph, Moses, it just keeps going. It's very interesting. Not an accident now, right? Now there's a consistent pattern that begins to emerge. There's two parts to the blessing. It's not, go have babies, be fruitful, and part two, I shouldn't say part two, that says one, not go out and work the land, you know, fill it and subdue it. Though there's an aspect perhaps to it. But that's really missing the point what is it well I would just show you that it's a covenant command on the one hand be fruitful and multiply does, does that well if that was a covenant command in the New Testament what might we call that anybody guess is there a word that we use oftentimes? it's not a word in scripture actually but we refer to evangelism good and what do we call that command when Christ... Commission. The Great Commission. That missional expansion of the kingdom of God in redemptive history, commission. And that's what we have going on there. I'm just telling you what you're going to see in a minute. And then, secondly, this, this language of fill and subdue. This is temple language. You, this is the exact language that you're going to hear descriptive of the chairmen. Um, and how they are to subdue those who come into the holy, shekinah, glory presence of God in the temple. How it is that the priest is, is said to have done that when he when he blesses the people. There is this causal relationship between the fill, subdue, and fruit, and multiply that begins to emerge. There is a command, a decree, if you will, a covenant, go. Spread the King of God. And then there is a means to that. Fill and subdue. And what does this language mean? I want to show it to you in a minute. In each case, the fill-subdue language is very clearly related to securing a place of divine presence. The so-called creation mandate is in fact a temple mandate. Even as the words are closely tied to the priestly duties of the temple in the Old Testament. It was the Old Testament equivalent of the Great Commission... As was created throughout covenant renewal context of redemptive history, you'll see this language over and over again given to Abraham about all the nations sort of uh, commission. And even it is a missional history, it requires a history of temple place insofar as its success is effectually assured. And so we now have this temple covenant book embedded in the, D- the divine benediction. The Great Commission, of course, the Old Testament, I've just referenced it with reference to these Great uh, Commissions in the Old. What would it look like in the New Testament? I'm sorry, I should have made that a little bigger. I don't know if I can do that here. Well, Can anybody read that? I can't. Well, here it is. I'm going to try. Oh, gosh. This is a great quote by uh, a guy named uh, Farley on his ascension. And here's what he says. In the resulting gap, a place has opened up for the Eucharistic community And a genuinely new entity within world history. He's talking about this benediction presence. Albeit a pacifier, one with its own peculiar view of the way things are. He continues, the ascension thus becomes the climax of Jewish history and the eschatological event fulfilling all the hopes of Israel. I, I read that because it's just a nice summary of, I wanted you to just fast forward from the Old Testament. I'm going to show you in a minute some of the Gospels, but but think about where this is all going. Because, of course, in Matthew, it's going to be to go and therefore make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Covenant, Command. Great commission, right? John has the same thing in John 20. I just didn't put it there. And then look at this idea of the covenant. Old Testament, I mean, this should uh, be temple, I'm sorry. I believe, yeah. I think it says covenant. Yeah, it does. This is temple. Think about what happens in the Old Testament. We haven't shown you this yet. In Numbers chapter 6, verse 20, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and the sons, saying that you shall bless the people of Israel, and you shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you shalom, peace, which is some word for the whole of restoration to God. And all the benefits of happiness and purposefulness and peace that comes with that. That word is huge. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, re-identifying them, and I will bless them. This language, um, you, can you think about what do you think it means that my face will, that, will shine upon them? What do you think that means? Anybody want to guess? Can you think of any images in the Old Testament where the shining is is evidence of anything? Like Moses. God's presence. God's presence. Where do you see the shining? Yes. What did you say there? Moses. Moses. Exactly. he been. It, it was the shining was attributed to having been in the presence of God. The presence of God. He. Where is this presence now located in the Old Testament? It's the temple, the Shekinah, shining glory. That's that Shekinah word, Shek- the shining. Have you ever stopped and think how often shining, bright light, transfiguration, for instance, in the Revelations, you see shining in the an image of this uh, this beatific vision of Christ in his ascension ministry. Paul's conversion. Paul's conversion. Dove from heaven. Dove from heaven. Spirit, so there's this incredible divine benediction, and what is, what does it do? It's not just saying, you know, commanding or decreeing. It is a decree, not a hope or wish list. It's a decree of God, backed by His very Shekinah presence. That what that the name of God. And that, which is, that would be another way of saying what you guys were trying to describe earlier as what is the most important issue that you need to get resolved? It's to be reconciled with God. It's to be, to have God's name restored upon you. It's interesting this week, um, I met with someone. uh, Thank you, Ellen. And uh, we had a wonderful conversation. We're going to continue to meet. And, um, but we were just talking about this issue of being, you know, trying to piece together all the, the psychology and the worldview, just trying to piece life together into, a, into this kind of a holistic sense of unity, organic unity, to bring all this stuff together. And he'd been on this journey for some time. And uh, it was very interesting that I find myself wanting to go back to Genesis and the image of God. Because if you stop and think about it, who we are, what we are, everything, our life, our breath, our meaning, our purpose, everything is derivative. That's what that image language is reminding us about. We are, to, to lose our name of God, to lose ourselves with God is to lose ourselves, said John Calvin. I mean, he Calvin was so brilliant in the way that he began his his, his theology. Because he makes this idea that, that we can't know ourselves except that we know God. We are those who are known. And, oh, I wish I had some time to just really have some fun with you. But have you ever stopped? I, I saw this interesting PBS uh, show. I love these little shows they do. And one of them was on uh, consciousness. And, and everyone acknowledges, you know, that, that this is the distinguishing Characteristic of humanity is consciousness. Everyone, there were scientists, all these folks, psychologists, psychiatrists, you know, philosophers. There's just what is consciousness? And as I listened to them describe consciousness, it, it was really what we would describe the imago dei, the, and, and the awareness of that. It's the sense that that the consciousness enabling us to think purposefully about the meaning of our life. Why? Because we're looking at ourselves from outside of ourselves. Which affirms, if you think about it, that to do such a thing, there is a mystical unity with God. And so think about the language we use. This is really heavy stuff. And if I'm blowing your mind, good. And if you don't understand it, all the better. Because that's the point. There's a mystery here. But throughout history we see this heaven to earth distinct but never separate intentionality. The prayer of redemptive history on earth as it is in heaven. And when you think about humanity Christians we could say are the ultimate humanist. But our humanism is rooted in the humanity of God. The personness of God. And therefore in a sense our consciousness is, is the vehicle through which we, we discern ourselves as someone to be known by a significant other. And our whole journey in life is, is rooted in this thing. That to be united, to be in, with, through the presence, the name of God. God is always distinct. We are not God. Only God is God. God. We are in our holistic being never separate from God. Image of God. That's right. And that but I'm trying to describe images more than a mirror, though it is a mirror. It is the it is the fact that my life is emanating from God. And my life impacts God to a certain extent. And I don't want to go too far with that because that could get into some real heresies. But the point being is that, that there's a sense in which <coughs> we are by nature. in a deep sense, in union with God. So when Paul describes sin in Romans 1, he goes through and he says that, that we had this this knowledge of God. We had this this God in our life. And he describes how, you know, he, he's, I think, referencing Psalms 19, where how, how is it, that the speech of God is evident to everyone. We have everything we need to know God. And we took hold of that knowledge. There's never a problem that's, of ignorance. You know, if everybody says, well, what about the person that... Everybody has enough revelation given to them, clearly discernible, according to Romans, according to uh, Psalms 19, that makes that, that, that holds them accountable to this knowledge of God. And it says in, this, in, in Romans that kata echo, kata meaning put away, push away. And echo means to have. So we have the knowledge of God. Everybody you meet has the knowledge of God. Do you know that? But we push it away. And there's a whole discussion right there about culpability, right? But but in that knowledge, what does he say happened? He says we exchange the image of God for the images of creatures. And a lot of people think he's talking about idolatry there. That's not right. Though there certainly is idolatry in all of this. When, it, when he goes through and talks about he, God delivers us over to, yes, he's delivering us over to our idols, but in these, the delivering over... This energy says saying we've exchanged ourselves. We've lost ourselves when we have rejected our union with God. That is the most important reality that we have to get fixed. We lose ourselves, who we are, our energy, our power, our purpose, our meaning, and deeper still, our very existence because our existence is distinct but never separate from God and so when we get into this benediction that's what's happening that we are being given a decree that is not a wish that is not a promise it is a command of God backed by his omniscient omnipotent And to have that command is irrevocable. Because God never changes. And therefore, when you see that story of Jacob and Esau, there's something really good news about that. How would we know that we're part of that irrevocable command? Well, it's all in the context of where and how it is given. Not so much in the sense of the people involved. We heard it again today in the sermon, how it is that, that ultimately the office is greater than the person. You heard that? Very, very important. Because, see, ultimately our confidence is not in a human who uh, who fills the office. It's in the office itself, and the mystery of God's presence that inhabits that office, even through foul men. It's interesting, even in our ordination um, you know, doctrine in our, in our confession of faith, etc. It makes it very clear that the efficacy of sacraments, for instance, is not bound to the character of the one giving it. It makes that clear in our confessions. You see, why? Because everything that's going on in this service, everything that happened today, it is, it is happening under the decree and subduing presence of of God's benediction. That whole service becomes a benediction of that. And that ending climax is ultimately the greatest thing that could ever happen. By sitting in that space, receiving it by faith, as someone said, we have heard God again decree that which is revocable by His presence we are restored our images are restored our humanity is restored and there's nothing not even me they can, they can take that away because it depends not on us who striveth but on God that's an incredible promise and so look at some of the passages here Daniel now therefore O our God listen to the prayer of your servant and to his please have mercy and for your own sake, O oh Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. You hear what he's doing? He's bringing this idea of benediction. Says, "Oh God, we need the benediction here in this desolate land." But then, what does he do? He takes with a real, you know, quick sort of turn. We need the shining of the sanctuary. Now, there's another argument by the way for the, you know, the church is an essential element of God, right? But notice how that comes up elsewhere. Psalms. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. Psalms. Restore us, O God. How is that done? Let your face shine that we may be saved. And then of course the uh Matthew twenty-six, it's a tiny thing there. I should have gone through this, this morning and made sure what it looked like. But Matthew twenty-six, I mean sixteen is where where that there's this You know, that God is binding and loosing on earth that which is bound and loosed in heaven. That is a blessing. That is, remember where that is? He blessed Peter, the head of the church. He blessed him, benediction him. And when he benedictioned Peter, he benedictioned all that which Peter, you know, upon this rock you, you shall build a church against which the gates of hell will not prevail. What will happen in that church there will be this subduing and filling of God's presence and subduing of God's power to subdue us into the kingdom. I mean, this stuff just gives me chills. And that's what's going on. So where do we see? Fast forward to Matthew 28. I didn't read the whole commission. Did you notice that? Go you therefore, into all the world, make disciples, baptizing, teach them all of men, and what? No. And lo, I'm with you. Didn't miss a beat, did it? blessing, the benediction. I'm with you. You see the same thing in John 20. Uh, it's just really powerful going to go home and read that. So that brings us to Revelations, of course, how does all end. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you were ransomed. People for God, from every tribe, language, people, and nation, be fruitful and multiply. Done. Revelation 7, after this I looked, and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Done. The Great Commission. And then of course, what else is done? The subduing. And I saw the Holy City, the New Jerusalem coming down. The presence of God that was mediated is now coming and the very immediate presence of Christ himself with a new city. that's going to just superimpose it upon the city of man. And from prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. The name is on us. We are gods. Gods is ours. Isn't that incredible? And so you see this incredible when I preached through Revelations, I was amazed at how often benediction was 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 focused on. In fact, it even drives the, the some of the pattern of Revelation. You see it quickly right there. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy. Blessed are those then who hear. Who are those who receive the benediction of God? It's those who have ears to hear, eyes to see, that Jesus Christ is the answer and the fulfillment of the benediction. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. From now on, Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, Shekinah glory, that they may rest from their labors for the deeds follow them. And land that goes. Blessing is the one who stays awake and is, is ready when he comes. And blessed is those who are invited the marriage supper, etc. So conclusion, and I'm going right here on time, it looks like. I hope you hear, and I want to give you a couple of answered q, q and as But clearly, I hope you hear, got this very brief little summary. This is not a wish. This is not even a prayer. It's not, by the way, a, 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 a eulogy or a, uh, um, a doxology. Okay, a lot of people. I, I, it's not a commission, although there could be a commission aspect to it. But I, you know, I'm always listening when I go to services. Was that a benediction? Was that blessing? Was that putting the name of God? And so you'll notice here. You might have noticed. We don't treat the blessing casually or like a cowboy, where I stand up there and in my head go, "Oh my God!" You're blah, blah, blah. No, it's got to come from divine scripture, and I would encourage you to remind anyone who does it to do that. Go to the scripture; it's loaded. We, I have a when we plan, we, we put all these old uh, you know liturgy sheets together. That was one of the first things I did 28 years ago. Was just spend weeks, you know, putting liturgy together these elements. Anyway. And I was amazed at just how much, how many benedictions are in the Old and New Testament. They're just everywhere. It's like the whole history of that. And we should go to those. But here's an example, though. So you say, well, why, what, what is it? You know, think about what it means to you. This promise that so many of us have, have, have held on to, it's all about the benediction. And I am sure of this. Why? Why? <laughs> Because I have received the benediction of Jacob. No matter what I've done to get it, I received it. I have it by faith. However, that journey got me here, I'm here. And I've got it. So therefore, I'm sure. I'm not basing it on me or the person who baptized me or the church, even that baptized me necessarily, as long as it's a true church. It can be a pretty flawed church, but it's gotta be a true church. But if it is a temple blessing, that is a blessing in the context of the temple of God, it is assured that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. What would be the implications of that to you? Let's just open it up for conversation. I have a couple of thoughts, but what do you think? What, this was kind of, okay, so if that's true, how's that going to change your life? A couple of things real quick. come the light of the world. Oh, man. We believe it. This is what the world needs. My confidence level just went up a hundredfold. You know, I believe that this is the most important mission every one of us have in this world. To see the world come under God's benediction. There is no greater thing in the world to do. There's nothing that needs to get more set than that. It's the restoration of humanity and happiness and purposefulness, and meaning, power, everything. Good. What else? What else does this, this whole little study kind of make you think about? Kind of intimated a few of them already. I guess it gives us peace even within our sin. Yes. Thank you. There is assurance, there is peace. Think about how it's going to change the way you, you handle suffering in your life. I am a child of the benediction. I received it rightfully, authorizingly. Um, I have properly been under the benediction of God. i got it. I have it. It was put upon me vicariously by the hand of the pastor today who was not acting as the person but as the office given to you to under all the governing that, that brought you under the care of that of that benediction through the examination of your faith by elders, examining all of this stuff that we take seriously here, that we want to take seriously for our children. It's not just a performance, some around twelve. Look, no man, let's, we want them to receive the benediction for once they do, man is done. And we're not gonna do anything to Fortify that benediction, lest we give them a false assurance, and there's no longer that journey to, in order to receive that. So that's great. We want them to have that assurance, and all of us who come. Anything else? Yeah. Oh, that was me telling somebody to tell. That was so telling my daughter to <laughs> come. Okay, daughter, you were just told to answer my question. How do you like that? <laughs> no, that's all right. <laughs> well, she'll do it. She'll do it. I'm eaten dinner with this girl. She'll do it. Okay, uh, one thing, just again, remember that, that it, it really is a reminder, though. And again, I appreciate the sermon today and the reminder that, that our salvation is not by means of this world. All the things that you said at the beginning of this meeting, money, wealth, education, prestige, uh, any of the other things, getting married, uh, not getting married, whatever these things were, they are not benediction, these are not benediction events. Being married in itself is not a benediction event. Graduating from high school, college, or anything else is not a benediction event. Buying your first home is not a benediction of Him. Benediction is real. It is focused. It is carefully constructed within a context of God's covenant, decree, and God's temple presence. And when you've got it, you've got the greatest gift in the world. Amen. Amen. I like this feeling. I'm soaking a little bit. Can I ask a quick question? Yes, you can. I've always wondered about this. Do we bow while you're saying the election, <laughs> or do we bow? Well, unless you can find me in Scripture where it tells you to do something while you're you're receiving it, I'm not going to bind your conscience. You can receive it. I, I'm not aware of Scripture commanding us how to receive it. Am I wrong? Does anybody know one? Maybe, I'm, I don't know everything, but I don't think it is. And I know a lot of churches will make a big deal put your hands up, you know, open them up receive it. These are all nice uh, rituals, if you will uh, and I'm not opposed to that. If, if, like when I sang today when I feel my spirit moved, I want to feel it physically and not body, just mentally so I put my hands up today. There's nothing the scripture commands me to do it there's nothing the scripture commands me not to do it so just do whatever you want to do. Same thing, you know. Um, I personally don't like to put my head down and close my eyes to receive it. It's not a prayer. I want to see those hands. So I would encourage you to at least look at the hands and envision that as the mediatorial, fleshed out, temple presence of God's hand putting himself upon me. Um do you do this? This would be kind of a praise. This will, you know whatever I, yeah. <laughs> Honestly and, you know we really do we are careful about that here. I mean it's, it's sad because, you know, it's interesting. Lisa's question is actually more important because so many people miss the, the emotional assurance because they're so worried about if they don't do it right, something's going to be wrong about this and I'm not going to receive it. And just that's why your church is very careful to regulate what we say to you as by good and necessary information from Scripture so as your conscience will not suffer the bondage of the traditions of men. And, and, and that is a beautiful the regulative principle we call it and it's not about worship, it's about everything the scripture is meant to set you free do never misunderstand that it's meant to set you free the whole doctrine developed particularly in the Reformation and it was all about the liberty of conscience and where you'll see it most beautifully articulated, this idea that I just responded to Lisa with, is in chapter whatever it is in Westminster on liberty of conscience and it's very powerful